And we also talked about the gap junctions, which essentially form pores through which small ions and molecules can be fused. And then there was this large group of anchoring junctions. And you can see that we can divide this large group into two subgroups, namely those junctions that form cell-cell adhesions, and then the others which form attachments of the cells to the matrix. And you see that there were two groups of cell matrix interactions. We had the focal adhesions, and then we also had the so-called hemidesmosomes. So the focal adhesions play a big role in uh, non-epithelial tissues, and we'll talk more about them later on and during the lecture. And then we have the hemidesmosomes, which uh, essentially glue the cells in epithelial sheets um, to the underlying vasa lamina. And here are again the different types of adhesion receptors. You saw that slide last week. We have the classical cotyrions, which have these five EC repeats. And they adhere, they form homophilic adhesions, and this happens in a calcium-dependent manner. And then we have the Ig superfamily camps, which can either form homophilic or heterophilic interactions. Um, and then on this side here, we have these two types of uh, cell adhesion molecules, the integrins and the selectins. The selectins essentially form heterophilic interactions with glycoproteins, so proteins that have sugars attached at their surface on another cell. And then we have the large group of integrins. Here's just one uh, cartoon for the alpha V, beta 3 uh, integrin, which, as you can see here, binds to an extracellular matrix ligand, fibronectin. Now, integrins can also bind to other cell surface receptors, but they're probably most well known for their ability to bind to extracellular matrix. And that's exactly uh, this kind of ligand uh, that we're going to talk about today. So we're really going to focus on the structure, the molecular composition and function of the extracellular matrix as it plays a very important role uh, during tissue development and function. So why do we need extracellular matrix? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Essentially, the extracellular matrix provides structural support for a tissue. Um, as you could imagine, an epithelium, for example, in the gut, needs to be stabilized um, in its structure. And that's part of the function of the extracellular matrix that underlies these uh, epithelial tissues. And if you think about skeletal muscle tissue, there you have those myofibers, which are surrounded by a so-called basement membrane. And the basement membrane also contains um, extracellular matrix. And it helps to really um, fortify these muscles and allow their contraction um, during muscle contraction without uh, damage to the cells. Um, it can help to compartmentalize tissues. For example, it can provide a barrier uh, in the skin to protect us from um, some environmental factors. It can provide hardness to bone and teeth and we'll talk more about these collagen fibrils that uh, form an essential part of these tissues. 
And actually there can be certain minerals that can be incorporated in these collagen fibers to really make the teeth as hard as they are. <clears throat> now rather than just structural support, dextrocell matrix can also contribute to uh, uh, certain signaling, uh, to the function of certain signaling molecules. They can essentially integrate um, certain signals such as growth factors, they can bind to them and present them to other cells. Um, and as you learned in our last lecture, the extracellular matrix itself has certain uh, motifs such as the RGD motif in fibronectin uh, which can be recognized by cell surface receptors such as the integrins and then the integrins will signal from the outside into the cell in order to change cell shape or other uh, functions of the cell. Now, especially during development, the extracellular matrix also provides pretty much a highway on which cells can travel, migrate uh, to their destination. For example, during the development of the neural crest, which gives rise to some of the peripheral tissues, such as peripheral nerve. Um, and then, it also plays a role in tissue maintenance, um, for example, in the intestine, and plays an important role, and I think you heard about that function, during wound healing. So during wound healing, cells have to migrate to the site of injury, and they do so by migrating on an extracellular matrix. Now we have different types of extracellular matrices. Um, so we already talked quite a bit about the basal lamina and I will show you in a minute what the actual molecular components of such a basal lamina are. And you saw that they are present in all the epithelia uh, in an organism. They also um, are formed by the cells in an endothelium, so these are the cells that line blood vessels. As we said, they surround muscles. They even surround fat cells. And of course, uh, nerves, for example, peripheral nerve, are surrounded by uh, Schwann cells. These Schwann cells also make a basal lamina. And that's actually important because when you cut the peripheral nerve, it can regenerate. And it does so by uh, basically extending an axon again uh, through that sheet of uh, basal lamina. Um, there's also extracellular matrix uh, that basically forms elastic fibers, and it's important in the lung or in the skin. So essentially, these are very elastic molecules that can be stretched, and then they, they jump back into, into shape. Um, for example, in our lungs, we have these alveoli, and we need them to breathe, and therefore, they need to be able to stretch. Um, then we have stromal or interstitial matrix, and this is essentially a matrix that forms glue between the cells. And as I already said, we have extracellular <coughs> in bone, tooth, and also cartilage. Again, in these tissues and also in tendon and ligaments, these collagen uh, molecules, collagen fibrils, play a very important role. So in pretty, much, uh, pretty much we can just put them into two groups. We have the basal lamina, and then basically we have all the non-basal lamina extracellular matrices. So again, you saw this picture last week. 
I just want to highlight that essentially you have what's called a basement membrane underneath every epithelium. And the basal membrane here is basically both the basal lamina together with the connective tissue. All right? And you see, you find that in all the different types of epithelia shown on this slide here. And essentially, the basal lamina glues the cells to the underlying connective tissue, and the connective tissue, in turn, gives stability to the whole structure. All right, so what is this basal lamina? I'm really going to focus on this uh, very specialized type of extracellular matrix. And by the way, it's not just one extracellular matrix molecule that makes up the basal lamina. It's multiple molecules. So here you can see an epithelial cell, actually an electromicograph of an epithelial cell here in gray. And this epithelial cell sits on um, basic connective tissue which you can see here is characterized by these collagen fibrils. And they've been cut across here in this section. So you essentially cut through these collagen fibrils. And then you also see this very thin layer, this gray layer, which is the basal lamina. Okay? And you see that it essentially uh, runs very nicely at a very nice distance. It's evenly spaced and basically follows the shape of the cell, of the epithelial cell up here. So this is the glue that will connect the epithelial cell to the underlying uh, connective tissue. And as you can imagine, and as we've seen last time, there are specific receptors, such as the integrins, that bind the epithelial cells to the underlying basal lamina. Now, you also see these structures here. These plaques, do you have any idea what they are? What could that be? Anybody? Uh, yeah, hemidesmosomes. So that's exactly the right location, right? You can see them in the EM because they form these nice electron-dense plaques. And as we learned last time, these hemidesmosomes are formed by a specific integrin, uh, the um, uh, beta-4-alpha-6 integrin, which um, essentially is located in the um, cell membrane of the epithelial cell and then binds to um, other uh, uh, to ligands in the basal lamina. Now here's another picture, pretty much showing the same thing, but it's a different type of preparation. This is a freeze fracture uh, preparation of an epithelial cell, again sitting on connective tissue. Um, but this time you can actually nicely see this meshwork of uh, collagen fibrils in the connective tissue here. And then you see how these fibrils get sort of smaller, they have a thinner diameter, and this is essentially where the basal lamina is attached to uh, the epithelial cell, which is this part here. Okay? So we have collagen fibers here, and then uh, basal lamina in this area here. And it's really a very, um, what you say, mixed meshwork of these collagen fibrils and then other extracellular matrix components in the basal lamina. Okay, so here's basically a model of such a basal lamina. Um, 
cartoon of all the different exosol matrix proteins that you would find in such a uh, butter lamina. And it's, it looks pretty confusing, but if you look at these different colored molecules, you can easily make out uh, these gray uh, colored laminin molecules. We'll talk more about them in a minute. You see how they can connect to each other and basically form a network. And also the same is true for type 4 collagen, which is also specifically a specific component of these basalaminal structures. It also can form a network. And then you have other molecules such as perlican, uh, a proteoclycan. We'll talk more about these type of molecules in a minute. And intactin, which can basically cross-link uh, these uh, two networks and give additional stability. And they also provide attachment sites for signaling uh, molecules such as growth factors. So together they form a really rigid structure that have many interaction sites for other binding partners. So here's just a summary slide to make it a little easier. Um, again with type 4 collagen and as you will see in a minute these are uh, trimeric molecules, meaning we have three molecules um, that associate with each other to form a collagen. And again, type 4 collagen is a specific collagen that you only find in these basalamina. So if you want to detect basalamina in, in the body on a tissue section, you take an antibody that's specific against collagen 4 and you can actually identify um, the basalamina in, for example, an epithelial tissue. So it's a trimeric molecule that has rod-like and globular domains. And as I said, it can form a 2D network. And then you have the laminins. Probably all heard about them. These are multi-adhesive molecules. That means they have many binding sites on, on there are many binding sites on the laminin molecule that other proteins can attach to. And essentially, they're cross-shaped and they form a 2D network with collagen. So laminin itself can form a network, collagen can form a network, and then together they can intercalate. So these two molecules are able to self-assemble into a network, but as you will hear in a minute, there are then some cell surface receptors that can actually assist in this process, such as the integrins. Um, again, there's perlican, a proteoclycan, <coughs> And this helps cross-link uh, the other types of extracellular matrix components. And then also nitrogen, which is also called intactin, uh, which is a rod-like molecule and specifically cross-links type 4 collagen and the other components in the extracellular matrix. All right, we'll be talking specifically now about type 4 collagen and the laminins. So here they are. Um, Lamin, as you can see, is a large molecule. It consists of uh, three chains. Here's the alpha chain with a molecular weight of 400 kilodalton. It's pretty big. And you see it's the longest chain. Uh, we also have a gamma chain and a beta chain. And together they form this uh, coiled coil domain. That's how they associate. Do you all remember how coiled coil interactions work? Good. So uh, they basically associate via uh, hydrophobic interactions. Um, 
And then you see that we can distinguish different domains. Here we have the so-called global domains uh, by which laminins can associate with each other, and I'll talk about that more in a minute. And then we have the LG domains down here in the tail domain. And you see how these LG domains can basically bind to cell surface receptors, right? That's how these molecules, and that's how in the end the whole network becomes anchored to the cell surface. So what are these receptors? Those can be integrins, but also other receptors such as syndicants and even glycolipids. And then there's another receptor which you will hear about a little later today, which is called dystroclycan. Okay? So all these can bind laminin through this particular LG domain. So self-assembly is of laminin shown here. Again, we have these global domains. And you can see that these uh, cross-shaped laminin molecules can then connect to each other via the global domain. And in this way, they can self-assemble into a network. Um, it's called a multi-adhesive protein for a reason. Namely, there are specific sites in the molecule, for example here and here, that can bind to other components of the exosome matrix, such as agrin, nitrogen, and uh, that really helps to uh, integrate all of these different exosome matrix components into uh, uh, a network. And so finally, I want to mention that, of course, there are many different types of alpha, gamma, and beta chains. And those are not just randomly expressed in the body, but they're expressed in a very tissue-specific manner. Um, so you have very specific laminins in the basal lamina, but you also find laminin in, in other extracellular matrices which are not basal lamina. Okay, so again, researchers have visualized um, these molecules by rotary shadowing, EM. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the technique, but essentially you purify a molecule, you, you basically use pipette, you spot it on a grid, and then you sputter coat it with a, a powder, gold palladium, very expensive method, and then you put it in the EM, and essentially, since you covered the molecule with this electron-dense dust, the electrons now won't pass through the molecule, you can actually see the shape of the molecule in the microscope. So that's shown here. You see again the lamina has this cross-shaped structure. Here's the tail domain with these LG domains. And you can also see the size of the molecule. Here's a measure, so it's a really big molecule. Yes? Um, slide four, you said it can attach the aggregate nitrogen. And you said that lamina was called some sort of molecule. What did you say it was? Because of that? A uh, multi-adhesive. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So here you just see a summary of all this again. And now you probably can better imagine how this laminar molecule can incorporate into such a complex meshwork as the basal lamina, right? It can form interactions uh, via the, um, um, the globular domains here and also actually the tail domains, I forgot to mention that, which uh, are then fortified by uh, receptors that can bind to um, these uh, tail domains and attach the whole meshwork to the cell. So laminin is a heterotrimeric multi-adhesive protein 
that is found in all basal lamina. But again, there are also laminins that are outside the basal lamina, but those may be different subtypes, depending on which alpha, beta, or gamma chain you have in the triangle. Do you have any questions on that? All right, so then I move on to the collagens. Now, as I said, um, the basal lamina has a very specific collagen, which is collagen type 4. Okay? So you can find collagen type 4 exclusively in the basal lamina. But all the collagens have this basic structure here, which is a triple helix. Okay? So you have three, um, you can say, subunits or collagen chains that assemble into a triple helix. And you can see them here, there's one chain in gray, one in orange, and one in white. Um, now, how do they associate with each other? Well, in order to understand that, you actually have to look at the sequence of these molecules. And if you look at their amino acid sequence, you will find that they have a very characteristic um, repeat of three amino acids. And you can see that this repeat has usually a glycine in the first position and then X and Y, and X and Y are often proline or hydroxyproline. And what's shown in this cartoon here on the very right side, it's basically a top view of such a helix. So you're looking down into the helix. And what you can see is that glycine, which as you know is the smallest amino acid, right, has a, just a hydrogen as a side group, comes to lie, in this configuration, comes to lie in the center of this triple helix because um, it would be difficult to accommodate larger residues inside the triple helix. Whereas prolines and other residues basically come to lie outside uh, the helix. Now, inside the triple helix, there are hydrogen bonds which keep the three chains attached to each other. And just like with the laminins, we can have different combinations of these three chains, different uh, subunits basically that define specific types of collagen. So collagen 4, for example, is defined by a specific uh, uh, type of uh, free uh, subunits. And you will see that in a minute. So here's again a picture now specifically for uh, collagen type 4. And essentially, the cartoon shows how, uh, what the domain structure looks like and how this protein can assemble into uh, basically oligomers down here. So let's start at the end terminus. At the end terminus, such a, a triple helix, so you're looking at um, basically three subunits here already associated into a triple helix. Um, there's a small head domain, and then the majority of the molecule here is, uh, has this triple helical shape, but it's also sometimes interrupted by non-helical stretches. Okay. And actually, these non-helical stretches allow the molecule to bend. And then at the very end of it, you have this large uh, globular domain. Okay. Now, this collagen type 4 molecule can associate in different ways. Either it can associate by the large global head domain here at the C terminus, right? And then it can form dimers. Or it can associate with its small uh, N-terminal domain, 
and then it can form tetramers. Now you put the two together, and that's how you can form these extensive uh, networks, because they can also laterally associate, so parts of these tropical helical structure they can associate with each other as well. So that's what makes um, collagen um, basically uh, a protein that can form these extensive <coughs> meshworks. And it's not really a closed meshwork, but you see that there are gaps in this meshwork through which molecules can actually diffuse. And that's very important for certain um, functions of this extracellular matrix. Now, in this rotary shadowing EM picture here, you can basically make out these bright dots. And this is where these collagen type 4 molecules form these head-to-head -head interactions. And then you can also see spots where basically there are tail-tail uh, interactions. So again, here in blue, you basically see the collagen type 4 network. And that's um, assembled together with the laminin network here in gray. And then you have the other molecules that cross-link the two networks. Okay, so the importance of this collagen uh, type 4 molecule and tissue organization is illustrated by a disease, a human disease that's called Alpert syndrome. Now, your kidney basically has the function, right, to filter uh, blood and to uh, form urine, basically removes waste from the blood, and it does so by filtering the blood through a double basal lamina. So there's two basal lamina. It's called um, the glomerular basement membrane. Now, there's a genetic disease, which is Alpert syndrome, uh, where you find mutations in collagen type 4 chains. And specifically, these mutations will affect um, basically amino acids in uh, the large global domain of these collagen 4 chains. And it has a pretty severe effect. It actually leads to um, uh, symptoms where people have um, syndromic uh, defects, including a progressive renal failure. Um, so eventually, these patients will end up on dialysis to get their blood clean. And then um, they also show sensory neural hearing loss and defects in the eye. And if you remember the last section of the previous lecture, you heard that these hair cells those receptor cells in the ear actually sit on the basement membrane, or basal lamina, I should say. So in these basal laminas, you also find collagen type 4. And that's why a single mutation in collagen 4 can have so many different effects on different tissues. Um, so how do we diagnose Alpert syndrome? Do you have any idea? Like if a patient shows up to your office, how would you? diagnosing with outputs. Well, you probably will ask him a couple of questions. You could also run genetic tests to look for the mutations in the collagen type 4 gene. But people have also developed antibodies. So you could take a tissue biopsy from the kidney, cut sections through the tissue, and then basically immunolabel the tissue with um, antibodies against type 4 collagen. Because what happens is, and that's shown here, that in a normal tissue, uh, you would basically label collagen type 4, which is shown here in green, 
and with an antibody, whereas in an output kidney, the expression of collagen type 4 is often drastically reduced or sometimes even completely absent. So that would then be ultimate proof that um, there must be a defect um, in the collagen molecule that affects its expression. <clears throat> And the red stain, by the way, is, is just a general marker for um, the basement membrane in uh, these kidneys. So in contrast to the basal lamina, I now want to focus on the connective tissue, which, as you remember, underlies the basal lamina in these um, epithelial cells, or epithelial tissues, I should say. Now. So previously, we were talking about laminin and collagen type 4, which are major components of basalaminae. And now we'll talk more so about the components of uh, the connective tissue. So here, we have different types of collagens, um, which are often bundled together into fibers, fibrilla collagen. And you wouldn't believe it, but these fibrilla collagen many times are stronger than steel. So um, that is really important. Just think about your Achilles tendon. That's how strong these um, fibrillar collagens are. They really help to fortify these tendon tissues. Um, we also have um, other molecules which are actually not proteins, and you will hear about them in a second, the glycosaminoglycans, or GAGs. And these are linear polysaccharide chains, so sugars essentially. And they help the tissues to stay hydrated because they have many charges on the surface. And they also provide resistance to compression. So they kind of cushion um, joints and tissues. Then we have the proteoglycans. And these are proteins that have actually these gags attached to them. And in this way, they can cross-link uh, many different exocell matrix components. Um, then we have, again, multi-adhesive proteins, so similar to the laminins. Uh, we have molecules such as fibronectin, and they can help to basically cross-link receptors on the cellular membrane and also exocell matrix proteins. Um, there's elastin, which, uh, as I mentioned earlier, can provide elasticity to tissue. So for example, in the alveoli of the lung, they need to expand and then kind of spring back into, into the same shape. And by the way, if you're a smoker, you can cause damage to these alveoli and then they are no longer elastic. That's why it's become very difficult to exhale after a couple of years of smoking. So here's again a list of pretty much all the different collagens that we know of. And as you can see, the type 4 collagens fall into the category of these sheet-forming and anchoring collagens. Okay? So it's a specific collagen that is found in all the basal laminae. And as we said, it forms a two-dimensional network and consists of specific alpha subunits, actually three um, alpha subunits. And then if we look at this class of collagen up here, these are the fibrilla collagens. And mainly types 1 through 3 form these uh, typical 300 nanometer long 
microfibrils. Um, you can find them in tissues such as skin, tendon, bone, cartilage, um, where they provide a really strong, um, where they really fortify these tissues. Um, okay, now I want to mention this last group here quickly, which are the fibril associated collagens, and we will <coughs> see a slide on those in, in a second. Um, and these are essentially collagens that do not form fibrils or networks, but they can laterally associate either with the type 1 collagen or type 2 collagens. And this way they change their properties. Do you have any questions on that? All right. So how do these collagens form? Well, they assemble in a very interesting manner, and that's shown on this slide. Um, like all the secreted proteins, and you probably heard about that uh, type of process in previous lectures, and we'll talk about that more in one of my lectures, um, you see that these secreted proteins, such as the extracellular matrix proteins, which need to be transported outside the cell, um, they are uh, synthesized on the so-called rough ER. So as you all know, rough ER is um, ER where ribosomes that are synthesizing proteins bind to the membrane of the ER and then directly synthesize these polypeptide chains into the lumen of the ER. And then the proteins travel through the Golgi to and are exocytosed into extracellular space. Now you just heard that some of these collagens form networks, even like gel-like structures, or these long fibrils. So in a way, it would be very bad if uh, these chains would already polymerize into a meshwork inside the cell. And for this reason, this um, biosynthesis of collagen includes a very intricate mechanism that avoids this polymerization. So as you can see here, uh, for the example uh, of uh, collagen type 4, I believe, we have the alpha 1 two alpha-1 chains and one alpha-2 chains, just to indicate that we, that collagens will end up being these uh, triple helices um, that are being synthesized by um, these ribosomes, okay? Now, as you can see, they have a propeptide attached to them. These propeptides will become important in a second. So what happens is that these uh, collagen subunits, procollagens as we call them, they actually uh, assemble slightly and they become attached by disulfide bridges. Okay, so they're covalently linked by disulfide bridges but they're not assembled into a helix yet. And this state, the, uh, the, it, the residues on these uh, procollagens become uh, hydroxylated and then these um, procollagens become assembled into so-called, well, into procollagens, but they're also bound by a chaperone, which basically prevents uh, further uh, compaction of these molecules, okay? So in this state, they are then transported through the Golgi and then in the extracellular space. And as you can see, these propeptides remain attached to these procollagen uh, molecules throughout the entire process. And they basically prevent 
the association and fibril assembly and cross-linking between the collagen molecules. And only once the protein gets secreted into the extracellular space, there's a, a, a peptidase that will then cleave off these uh, pro-collagen parts. And then finally, these collagen molecules can assemble into fibrils and can be cross-linked. And what's interesting is that they do so basically in, in a register of 67 nanometers. So, um, and this can be seen, you see these striations here, this can be seen as striations even under the light microscope, okay? So the shift in register here gives you these striations. And you end up with these very strong collagen fibrils, as I said, that have basically consistency of steel. So as I've showed you before, we have these kind of atypical collagens, type uh, six and eight, which can specifically associate, and basically, uh, in this case, cross-link a type one collagen. Um, and you see that they don't have these long fibrillar structure, but these are shorter um, segments of uh, fibrils that are linked by these uh, more flexible um, uh, chains. And they also, as in the case of type 9 collagen, which binds to these type 2 collagen fibrils, they provide additional attachment sites for uh, proteoglycans, such as here, uh, chondroitin sulfate uh, proteoglycan. So in a way, they can modify, you could say, the physical properties of these uh, type 1 and type 2 collagen fibrils. All right, so what are these proteoglycans? <clears throat> so that's another group of molecules that you find in these uh, connective tissue extracellular matrices. Well, the name proteoglycan basically stands for a glycosaminoglycan that becomes attached to a core protein. Okay, it gets a little complicated here. And these glycosaminoglycans are essentially uh, polysaccharides that consists of, consist of disaccharide units. Okay. So what is a disaccharide? Two sugars. All right. <laughs> Good. So for example, repeats of chondroitin sulfate, <laughs> which consists of uh, glucuronic acid and N-acetylgalactose. Acid, so two sugars combined together. And you can see how they are linked then via these uh, galactosidose and xylose bridges to a serin in this core protein. Now these, um, these gags can be really large or short, depending on how many repeats you have. And uh, in this way, you can basically generate huge um, macromolecules. You can find these uh, proteoglycans either as cell surface receptors so for example, if the, the protein, the core protein here is a transmembrane protein, you could have these uh, uh, GAGs attached to them, and then they are cell surface receptors, um, in which case, of course, they are extracellular. Um, I mean the GAGs. Or they can help to uh, bind and present a growth factors when they are part of the extracellular matrix. And that's, of course, the function we are interested in uh, today. 
Okay. Now, don't worry, you don't need to learn all these chemical structures here. But I just want to give you a couple of examples for these different uh, glycosaminoglycans and their disaccharide units uh, that can be attached, get attached to these core proteins. Okay, so for example, heparin here, in the upper right portion, you see that it's composed of uh, either glucuronic acid or L-hydroronic acid together with N-acetyl or N-sulfoglucosamine. So two sugars that become attached to each other. And you will see in a, on the next slide that heparin plays a very important role. Actually, yeah, it plays a very important role and has about 200 of these uh, disaccharide units attached to um, a core protein. And then we have others such as keratin sulfate, which has about 20 to 40 subunits, in this case, the galactose and N-acetylglucosamine. Um, chondroitin, which has less than 250 subunits of these two sugars. And then a molecule that I'll talk about in a second. It's called hyaluronin. And you can see that it has up to 25,000 disaccharide units. So it's a huge macromolecule. And you will see in just a moment that actually this protein can either function as a gag alone or it can has, have other proteoglycans associated to it. And essentially this um, hyaluronin, hyaluronin has a large number of um, polar groups and therefore it can actually associate with a large number of water molecules and that gives it a gel-like consistency and because of that it basically gives connective tissue um, what we call, um, it, it can basically allow connective tissue to become compressed. Now, these uh, gag chains in the proteoglycans can become modified. And here's an example of such a modification. So I showed you before uh, the heparin, heparin molecule. And he heparin is essentially the same thing as heparin proteoglycan, but in this case, it becomes hypersulfated. Okay? So you see these two sulfate groups here that are highlighted in red. And these modifications can be really important. For example, here you just see part of the whole uh, polysaccharide chain, this gag chain, right, that becomes attached to a protein. And this particular part of this gag chain has a biological activity. Okay? And it only has this activity in its hyposulfate state. When it's hyposulfated, it can regulate the activity of a protein called antithrombin. And maybe you heard about thrombin, which plays a very important role in blood clotting. So basically, this pentasaccharide can regulate the activity of antithrombin 3, which in turn regulates the activity of thrombin. And so people with blood clotting disorders, they have to inject themselves with heparin in order to prevent further blood clot formation. Now, some people, when they go on long flights, 
resistance in order to prevent what's called deep vein thrombosis. They also inject themselves with uh, heparin. And again, the sulfate groups shown here are really essential for dysfunction. Okay, so now I want to show you one of the biggest molecules that we know in life. All right? um, this molecule is called proteoplycan hyaluronin aggregates. Um, now, let me start down here. Essentially, here we have what's called a proteoplycan. As you heard before, proteoplycan consists of this large polysaccharide, or glycosaminoclycan, as we call it, or GAG. And you can see that this core protein here, the acrican, right here, it basically has two types of these GAGs attached to it. In yellow or orange, uh, these chondroitin sulfates, and then up here we have these keratin sulfates. So two different types of GAGs. So that by itself makes it a very large molecule. Now, as you heard, hyaluronin is actually a GAG itself. Okay, so this is also polysaccharide, the, the yellow molecule shown up here. And it can actually interact with this aggregate core protein. And this interaction is fortified by this link protein up here. Okay, now as you can imagine, you can have multiple of these aggregate uh, proteoplycans attached to hyaluron. Okay. So in this way, you can generate uh, gigantic molecules like the one that's shown here. So they're so big, they're bigger uh, than some bacteria. Okay, see the scale here, 300 nanometers. How big is a bacteria? How big are bacteria approximately? Any idea? Let's say 10 microns. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good number. So, you know, 5 to 10 microns, so you can see 300 nanometer here. So, probably 1 to micron, the entire length of this molecule. So, what do we have here? Essentially, if you flip this back, oops, um, you would see this structure here, green and, and orange, right, which highlights the um, proteoglycan and then yellow, the hyaluron molecule. So, here in the center of it, you have the hyaluron molecule. And then associated via the linker protein, you have this aggregate proteoglycan in orange and green. So this forms this very, very big um, molecule. And you can have about 100 of these aggregate molecules attached to the hyaluronin. So this aggregates actually give cart cartilage its unique gel-like properties and allow it, give it some resistance to deformation. All right. Um, now, finally, I want to mention fibronectin. And you saw this picture uh, in the last lecture. Essentially, fibronectin forms dimers, which is not, not shown here. This, is just, this slide just shows a monomer. And it forms dimers by forming disulfide bridges. You can see here uh, in the C-terminal part, there are these uh, two uh, sulfhydro groups, which can form basically disulfide bridges with another molecule. Um, so fibronectin can then attach to cells 
uh, sorry, can attach cells to the extracellular matrix by binding to other extracellular matrix proteins and uh, proteoglycans as well as integrins. And that's probably what they're best known for. Uh, you heard last week that they have this specific RGD motif, which is recognized with very high affinity by these integrin molecules. Okay? And you also saw that if you alter this RGD motif in any way, if you just substitute one amino acid, that will actually abolish binding of the integrins uh, to the molecule. Um, then in the N-terminal portion, we have specific functional domains that can uh, interact with some uh, extracellular matrix proteins, such as collagens. And each of these domains consists of different repeats. I'm not going to go into the details of this. Um, the function of these fibronectins is essentially to regulate uh, cell migration and differentiation. They also play an important role in uh, wound healing. Okay? And a specific cell type in, in, uh, in our body, these are the fibroblasts. And that's where fibronectin actually got its name from because these fibroblasts secrete a lot of fibronectin. They can make their own fibronectin. Here you can see again a picture of such a fibroblast. And this is basically a repetition from last week, but this fibroblast here makes uh, these nice uh, actin fibers, okay? And then you can see that at the very, uh, at the contact point where the cell makes contact with the uh, extracellular matrix, actually fibronectin, I should say, uh, we have these integrin receptors which have been labeled with a specific antibody uh, in green. Actually, there's only one particular um, integrin that binds to fibronectin, and that's the beta-1-alpha-5. We'll talk about that in just a moment. So essentially what's happening here is that you plate these fibroblasts on the culture dish, and they start to spread, they may even migrate, and then uh, by doing so, the um, basically interaction of the integrins with the fibronectin leads to an actin remodeling, or remodeling of the actin cytoskeleton, and that actually, during migration, that builds up tension, and this tension actually can be related back uh, by adapter molecules through the integrins to the outside. And that's what we talked about uh, last week when I mentioned that integrins can also function uh, by, uh, in a mechanism that includes outside, uh, sorry, inside-out signaling, okay? So essentially they get activated inside by tension of the actin cytoskeleton and then they change their shape and they actively remodel the surrounding fibronectin. So you can imagine that there's basically tension here inside the cell, uh, and you have these really uh, strongly bundled actin microfilaments, and then the integrins convey that tension across the plasma membrane, and they actually remodel fibronectin in a way that they form these very long fibronectin fibrils. So that's the inside-out signaling of the integrins. Now, these um, adhesive interactions that we talked about uh, last week are usually very stable, right? An epithelial cell needs to be stably connected, for example, to the underlying basal lamina. However, uh, especially during development, cells many times have to migrate from one place to another in a tissue, and that's when they have to crawl across or through a layer of extracellular matrix. 
Um, so therefore, in non-epiphyllic cells, these intergreens are often clustered in structures called uh, focal adhesions, together with other um, molecules, okay? And these adhesive structures, so they're called focal adhesions or focal contacts, and you can see them here, where they've been stained, I believe, with some uh, uh, antibodies against integrins. Um, and these contacts are transient, okay? Because they need to, cell just has to make some attachment, then it will basically move forward. Um, I'm oversimplifying this here. But essentially, integrins become clustered in focal adhesions, and uh, they, these adhesions basically include, they're very dynamic, and they include a multitude of different proteins. There could be other cell surface receptors, and many cytoskeletal proteins, uh, signaling molecules, etc. And uh, these focal adhesions can be studied basically just on a culture dish when you plate cells in a culture dish, in which case you get these so-called 2D adhesions. But people have realized that this is not very, a very good um, system to actually study these adhesions because it doesn't really resemble the situation that you would encounter for a cell in a tissue, right, where you have a 3D structure. So to circumvent this problem, people have started culturing such fibroblasts in a three-dimensional matrix. So um, that then will uh, give the cell a different environment. And surprisingly, research have, researchers have found that these cells will behave very differently in such a three-dimensional matrix than just on a matrix that has been plated on a flat culture dish. So they proliferate in a different way at a different speed. They can differentiate faster. And uh, you basically get a whole different dynamics of these uh, focal adhesion complexes. So that really shows also that it's not just the molecular composition of the extracellular matrix that's important, but it's also its structure and topology. So 3D matrix is very different than just uh, plating, let's say, laminin on a flat culture dish. All right, here you see a, a quick summary of the integrins. Um, want to point out a few things here. Um, of course, as you all know, integrins are heterodimers between an alpha and a beta subunits. Many alphas, there's many beaters, and you find all different combinations of the alphas and beaters. The beta-1 integrins here are a very large group. And as you can see, they bind to many different extracellular matrix proteins, uh, such as collagens, laminins. Um, I want to point out there's one specific receptor for fibronectin, which is alpha-5 beta-1. And then you see that there's some unusual integrins here um, that can bind to something called VCAM or ICAM. And these are actually cell surface receptors, okay? So that's probably the lesser known function of the integrins. They can also act as uh, heterophilic uh, adhesion molecules for other cell surface receptors. So they're not just adhesive receptors for extracellular matrix, but that's their better known function. Last but not least, there's another very important receptor complex. It's the, uh, that binds to extracellular matrix. It's called the dystrophin glycoprotein complex. Um, it can associate with the extracellular matrix by binding uh, to laminin. 
and it does so through um, an exocellular protein. Sorry, um, yes, it's actually exocellular. It's exocellularly associated protein called alpha dystrophite. Okay, and then in the muscle membrane, which for some reason is not even shown here, yeah, there it says plasma membrane. You have a whole complex of different proteins called the sarcospans. And I don't want you to remember all the details, but what's important is that there's a dystrophin molecule inside the cell, which provides a very critical link to the actin cytoskeleton of the muscle fibers. And you all heard about the important role right, that actin plays inside a muscle cell. So any disruption of the actin cytoskeleton will basically render the muscle cell non-functional. So what happens is that this dystrophin glycoprotein complex provides a stable link from the basal lamina, the extracellular matrix, which surrounds the muscle fibers to the cytoskeleton inside the cell. And researchers have found that mutations in pretty much any of these uh, components of this complex can lead to muscular dystrophy, especially mutations in this very large dystrophin protein, which lead to uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which is a, a disease ca characterized by, by severe uh, muscle uh, membrane rupture and muscle wasting. So the more people move, the more this connection and the integrity of uh, basically the muscle membrane will be disrupted in this disease. It's a terrible disease. Um, and people eventually, usually they become wheelchair bound and eventually they suffocate because their diaphragm muscle doesn't work anymore. So yeah, a very important complex. All right, um, now I want to quickly talk about um, the birth of cells and how cell fate is defined, so-called lineage, and uh, how cells die, and I will also talk a little bit about stem cells. I'll try to cover as much as I can here. But essentially, you're looking at um, a developing uh, part of the cerebellum here, a part of the developing cerebellum, which is so-called folia, and in the folia, you have these cells here labeled in green, which rapidly proliferate. And these are actually the stem cells of the, um, of the cerebellum. So this is where uh, cells are born. And you see in red, the red label just stains all the other cells. Essentially, cells are born here in this proliferative zone, and then they migrate outward to form cerebellar tissue. Um, so essentially, these cells have the ability to reproduce themselves and then also give a rise to several specific types of uh, specialized cells, or more specialized cells, I should say. So that's the definition of a stem cell, self-renewal, and the ability to give rise to other more specialized cells. And we'll talk about a variety of different stem cells that exist in different tissues. Now, most cells do not divide forever. They go through a phase of uh, rapid growth where they divide by uh, cell, cell division. They undergo cell division. Um, and then eventually the cells will die off. And that's called senescence. 
Now, it's still not quite clear how this process called senescence or biological aging works, but essentially the cells acquire mutations and damage during, um, during uh, multiple uh, cycles of uh, mitosis. And it's thought that senescence is basically a mechanism to get rid of these defective cells so that they can be replaced by other cells. And if you wouldn't replace them, then these cells may um, have accumulated so, much, so many DNA mutations that there would be a real danger of them becoming uh, cancerous if cell division continued. Okay? So that is senescence. Basically, this process of uh, aging can occur both at the cellular level as well as the level of the whole organism. And the, the mechanisms that underlie this process are still kind of mysterious. All right, um, so in the next few slides, I want to focus on the very first cell divisions that occur during early mammalian development. And we'll also talk about these, uh, the properties that these embryonic stem cells have. So of course, the first step here is the fusion of a sperm with the oocyte. And as you can see in this picture here, the oocyte is surrounded by this gelatinous mass, the sonar pellucida. Um, and then uh, you have this, um, you have this polar body, which is essentially a byproduct of meiosis. And essentially what you achieve by a fusion of the sperm with the oocyte is the so-called, you get the zygote, which in contrast to these, uh, these um, haploid germ cells is uh, diploid. And then what happens in uh, the next days is that you have multiple cell divisions so-called uh, cleavage. And basically, they take about one day each. So you, you go from the two cell to four cell to eight cell uh, to um, another cell stage called compact morula. So what happens here is that uh, mainly cateterians will lead to um, um, compaction by increasing the cell cell adhesions. And that leads to this uh, compacted stage. And then eventually you end up by, uh, basically some cells will uh, migrate to, into in the interior of this morula and uh, form so-called uh, plastocyst. And that's shown here. Okay. So again, you have the cleavage stage embryo. And then eventually end up with this uh, plastocyst. And there's some cells that migrate inside the cell which is a basic filled at cell, I should say, inside the plastic cyst. And you see the cell is uh, filled with, um, um, it's surrounded basically by a uh, cell type. Um, these are the trophoplasts. <clears throat> and then inside the cells, inside this plastocyst, you have these um, inner cell mass. Okay. So this is the first time point where you can essentially distinguish two types of cells. Okay. Um, so the um, inner cell mass inside here, these are the, the stem cells, which will give rise to the whole embryo. And then the, the outer cells here, the so-called troph ectoderm cells, um, they will give um, rise to um, extra embryonic tissue. So importantly, you can find these embryonic stem cells in the inner cell mass, and then you can actually isolate them as shown here, and you can grow them on a 
on a fetus, uh, on, a, on a layer of fetus cells, uh, which are made of fibroblasts. Uh, you can then dissociate the cells and replate them, and then they will grow more ES cells, and eventually you see that these ES cells are capable of forming uh, so-called embryoid bodies, okay? And when you cut across these embryoid bodies, you will see that they actually contain all the three different types of uh, primordial tissues, endoderm, mesoderm, and endoderm. So that means that these ES cells are pluripotent, okay? So they fulfill the characteristic of a stem cell in that they can uh, self-renew, they can make more ES cells in this case, and if you give them the appropriate uh, signals, they can give rise to other differentiated cell types. And of course, researchers have studied this process extensively and to identify the factors that will finally commit such a pluripotent cell to differentiate down a particular cell lineage. Um, now, such pluripotency of these um, ES cells, in this case, a mouse ES cell, can also be shown if you actually inject um, such ES cells into an early plastocyst, and then you basically implant that plastocyst in what's called a pseudo-pregnant female mouse. And essentially, what you will get is a new mouse, and these ES cells that have been transplanted will give rise to many different tissues of this mouse once it's born. So it's a chimeric mouse, and that essentially shows that these cells that have been transplanted are pluripotent, because they can give rise to to many different tissues. <clears throat> now this technique is also used in order to generate genetically engineered mice. I don't know if you heard about that in some of the previous lectures, but you can imagine that you can isolate these ES cells, bring them into culture, at which point you can um, basically modify the genome, for example by inserting a DRENS gene into these cells. And then you can take these cells, aggregate them, put them back into basically a donor, a host plastocyst, and this plastocyst then gets implanted into, as I said, a pseudo-pregnant female, and a whole new mouse will develop that is then genetically modified. And if some of these cells populate not just, let's say, skin tissue or liver tissue in this new mouse, but if they populate the germ cells, then we uh, speak about a mouse going germline, meaning the modified ES cells now will be transmitted over many generations, and you basically have generated a stable uh, transgenic mouse. All right, so just to um, talk a little bit more about the stem cells here, essentially these stem cells can divide in two different ways. They can divide symmetrically, so essentially producing two identical daughter cells, which are also identical to the parental cell, okay? So they can self-renew. They can also um, divide asymmetrically. And what happens here is essentially that from one parental cell, you, you um, establish two specialized or differentiated um, cells, daughter cells, 
And usually that involves a molecule, um, some signaling molecule, for example, becoming asymmetrically localized in the parental cell. So in this way, you can see that there's a pedigree here, and this pedigree essentially is called cell lineage. Okay, And this cell lineage can be different for uh, any kind of cell. And it can also involve uh, cell death. So the cell can be removed from uh, a tissue. Okay. So the number of stem cells in a particular tissue usually remains constant. Okay? And this can be accomplished by having the stem cell divide asymmetrically, as shown here. And then we generate basically another stem cell and one differentiated cell. But sometimes, for example, during development, it may be important to actually generate a larger stem cell pool. And that can be accomplished by having some stem cells divide symmetrically and then others in the stem cell pool divide asymmetrically. So they still produce differentiated cells, but then we have some that basically just uh, generate more stem cells. Uh, there may be other situations in a tissue where you need more differentiated cells, and this can be accomplished by having um, basically some cells give rise to um, stem cells, differentiated cells, but then you have some stem cells that completely will also give rise to just differentiated cells. Okay? This way you can increase the number of differentiated cells in a tissue. Now, these stem cells need the right microenvironment to survive. And these microenvironments, which can be established by the cells that surround the stem cell, they uh, usually uh, include certain uh, factors, such as hormones or signaling molecules. And therefore, this microenvironment uh, has been called a stem cell niche. And basically, you will see in the next few slides that there are many different types of stem cell niches in different organisms and in different tissues. It's really difficult to find these stem cells um, because usually they are not morphologically very distinct, so the structure is not very different of them. Um, and they also are usually rare, and surprisingly, they don't divide very rapidly. Some of them actually divide very slowly. Now, research have found that there is a stem cell niche actually in the intestinal uh, epithelium. And you can see a cartoon of the intestinal epithelium. Here you see that we have these so-called crypts at the bottom of the epithelium. And it is these crypts that basically provide a niche for intestinal stem cells. So this is where they have been identified. They've been found to be located here between these uh, differentiated cells, these panel cells, so these are the intestinal stem cells that would proliferate, um, or sorry, that proliferate, give rise to these um, uh, daughter cells here, which then proliferate more and eventually differentiate. So the whole thing, all these cells basically shift, shift up. That's the direction of cell migration here. <clears throat> Again, it's really difficult to find uh, these cells. Um, and I just want to show you a couple of experiments that have been used to um, define these to find these stem cells and the stem cell niches. So here you can basically see cross sections through um, the, the crypt of such an intestinal epithelium. And what researchers did is they uh, essentially uh, 
took an explant of the intestine, they put it in culture, and then they added radioactively labeled thymidin. Okay? And thymidin gets incorporated into, into DNA when the cells divide. So they basically gave this pulse of radioactive thymidin, and they labeled the cells. And as you can see, the cells that divide, and sorry, then they chase. <laughs> There's a chase period where they basically wash with non-radioactive thymidin. Okay? So in this way, all the cells that, that uh, divide later do not get labeled anymore. Okay? So it's really a pulse and then chase. You basically wash off the radioactive thymidin. So you can see that the proliferating cells sit first here at the very bottom of this uh, crypt in the intestine. And then after one day, you see that these label cells, which originally proliferated here, they move up in the epithelium until they reach the very top part. So that suggested that these intestinal stem cells are located down here and that this must be a stem cell niche. All right. And I think I have to conclude this here. And I might continue.